Welcome to Clock Out, the Vicarious Life Podcast. This is for the mavericks of the world who are embracing freedom and discovering purpose. Need a surge of inspiration? You're in the right place. I'm your host, Tracy Miller, a free-spirited, joy-seeking entrepreneur who is on a mission to find like-minded, open-hearted freebirds to share their stories of triumph, struggle, and inspiration. Until you're ready for your own adventure, let's clock out and live vicariously through others who have blazed the trail. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Clock Out the Vicarious Life. Today, as always, I'm super excited because I get to interview Chris Quigley. Chris is a licensed psychotherapist. He's also a creative, and that means he's a singer, he's a songwriter, he's a home designer, and I'm sure he's going to create many more things as life goes on. And I always love when I get to interview somebody that I know in person. Chris and I go way back to right around, what would you say, Chris, 2000? 2000, 2001. Yeah, yeah, something like that. You're yet another person that I met uh, in the big house, yes. right? Mont- <laughs> Doing prison time? Yeah, Montana State Prison. <laughs> and what side of the fence were we on? We were on the inside. <laughs> but I always say we can, I, I get to go home to my king-size bed at the end of the day and right. sleep in a, a, a comfy home versus a, a prison, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. So you, I, as all of my <laughs> listeners know, was on the security side of things and then case management right. and training. You were in your own little neck of the woods in psychotherapy, specifically sex offender therapy. Correct. So yeah. why don't we start there? Tell <clears throat> me a little bit about your practice and, and specifically what is psychotherapy? Because I think a lot of people get confused between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, yeah. et cetera. Well, it can be a psychotherapy covers psychology and, and psychiatry, but also uh, those of us that are uh, master's level licensed clinicians. And, and my background is that I uh, am a licensed clinical social worker. I have a master's degree in social work, uh, bachelor's in social work. And, and so I'm a master's level psycho- psychotherapist or licensed clinical social worker, okay. LCSW. Yeah. Okay. So then how does somebody get into a specialized topic such for you for example have you only done sex offender no no I um you know going back into the 90s <clears throat> I don't know if, if you knew my story I got clean and sober from drug and alcohol addiction and uh in 1989 I was 30 years old and um I had no idea at the time I was a chef I'd been a cook and worked in restaurants from age 19 to age 30, eventually age 31, my first year of sobriety, I was still, I was still a cook. Um, and I worked uh, all sorts of different restaurants. I worked in national parks for a while. I did two summers at Old Faithful. I was, right. a, I was a chef at the Old Faithful Inn. I worked in the Grand Tetons. I worked in Glacier National Park. I was kind of, I, wor- I lived out of a backpack basically for four years. Um, I would hitchhike from a national park to work at ski resorts in the winter. So I worked at Jackson Hole. Uh, I worked at Big Mountain. I worked at uh, a ski resort in Lake Tahoe called Kirkwood. And so I would ski all season and then um, usually hitchhike back to Missoula, which was kind of my home base, and spend a a month there and then hitchhike to the next uh, national park for the summer. And then I'd take a month off in the fall before ski season started. And 
So I did that for like four years. I had a transport backpack, oh and um, and so that was that was my life during kind of my early twenties, and then I settled into being a chef at what used to be called the Mansion Restaurant in Missoula, and, uh, and that burned down in 1991, and it's now the Keep okay. Restaurant. For a while, it was called Shadows Keep, then it became the Keep. Uh, but anyway, so I was a cook, and. Um, I, after getting my third DUI in 1989, oh, I had okay. a judge tell me I was going to uh, either spend six months in his county jail and in Pennington County, South Dakota, uh, on the Indian Reservation in, in Rapid City, or I could go. Uh, I could go to treatment, and uh, so I kind of considered him my guardian angel because I was like, finally, someone else is making this decision for me because I knew I had a problem and. So I moved, went back to Missoula and got into treatment, and um, and I was I, I, I was in a counseling session actually with group this this therapist this really pretty redhead named Janice, and and, um, and I thought, you know, you can only make so much money being a chef, right? Uh, and I, and Janice drove a Cadillac, so I was sitting there in group, <clears throat> I was like three weeks sober, and I was like, I could do this. And so I asked her, what do I need to do to do what you do, you know? What yeah. I, and sh she's like, well, you, you know, you could get a two-year degree and, and, uh, and, and still become an addictions counselor. Or I would recommend a four-year degree. So, But then she's like, but stay sober for a year. Just, yeah. First just things like, first. <laughs> yeah, just work for a year. Just learn how to live. You know, go to a lot of AA meetings and then enroll at the University of Montana. They've got a great social work program. And I did exactly what she told me to do. And a year later, I enrolled at the U of M in the social work program. Okay. And I, and I got <clears throat> just hyper-focused on becoming a licensed addictions counselor, or what we used to call back then a chemical dependency counselor. Okay. So a couple questions <clears throat> before we move forward, because this is super interesting. First of all, why the heck would you ever grow up <laughs> after playing hitchhiker <laughs> yeah. in all these different places? Because to me, that seems like the life. So why, you know, early 20s, why, what made you want to move on from that nomadic lifestyle? And were you drinking heavily then? Yeah. Oh, my God. I was drinking. I, uh, you know, my substance use started at 12 years old when I first smoked weed. And got drunk for the first time at probably 13 or 14. And by the time I graduated high school, I was going to bars on weeknights and shooting pool and mm -hmm. hanging out in bars on school nights. Yeah. You know, I was, the drinking age was 18 and I was a full blown alcoholic by the time I graduated high school. Okay. So and that was already part of your life. You, oh my God. Total. Yeah. Really bad. And it's, it's weird because, it, um, you know, I was still kind of an active outdoorsman. I was a skier. I did a lot of backpacking and spent spent a time in, in in the mountains. And um, but alcohol always came first. And yeah. And um, you know, every night, every and yeah. And I by the time I got into my twenties, I was mixing it with a lot of drug use, especially mm -hmm. in my mid to late twenties, cocaine and stuff. And okay. And then. Uh, and, and by 30, by the time I went to this treatment program in Missoula, it was an outpatient program, and by that time I was like, I was looking at all these people that I had briefly gone to college with for one semester at, sure. at age 20, and I joined a fraternity and um, quit school after a one semester and still lived in the fraternity for three years. Oh. 
it, it was like Animal House, you know. Yeah. And they had a wet bar in the basement, and I'm like, this is the life. But, <clears throat> I, you know, all these guys that I went to college with had graduated and were starting careers and had families. And and, uh, and I, want, I wrote the song about recovery called, um, gosh, I don't even remember the name of the song, but... Um, I felt like life was passing me by, like a like a blurry movie, like uh-huh. like I was watching it, and it was very blurry. But that I wasn't a part of it, mm-hmm. and it's hard to describe. But um, I remember um, after I did get into that treatment program, I went to my first AA meeting. Uh, I remember coming out of that meeting, which was downtown Missoula, uh, down on Pine Street, and I walked out on on the Higgins. And it was lunch hour, you know. I was like. One o'clock in the afternoon, and there was all these people and the cars, and I, I didn't have a driver's license or a car or a bank account or a place to live. I was sleeping oh on someone's couch. I'd been fired from my last job. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I was like, I was watching all these people with families and lives and cars and jobs, and I just felt like I was on the outside of life, looking in, like like they were all in on this secret. Right. That I wasn't a part of. And um, and I just decided I needed to find out what that secret was. Yeah. Okay. So into school you go. Yeah. Looking for something more. Yeah. Realizing that alcohol is not it, nor yeah. is nomadic lifestyle traveling across the country. I, I find that topic, I I could do an hour just on that topic because I have experienced that myself recently. And I feel like it's a trend that's going on in the world that I think the trend has always been there. I think it just gets more attention right now. This nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. It's about freedom, I think, but for you, it might be different. No, it is. It's about yourself, but it's also about freedom. Yes. And, and people, but it's also escapism. Right. To a degree, you know, people are, whether it's through alcohol or whether it's through going to different places and not having attachments to things and places, but really they're just always seeking more and more and more. And it may be, you know, they, they priding themselves in only having a backpack yeah. and having minimal things, but yet the concept is still the same. They're yeah. seeking out more feeling of joy they're seeking out more feeling of adventure more just more in general seeing things having amazing experiences when that can be a form of escapism too because they can't just sit within themselves and be with whatever it is that they're doing in life does that make sense it does I think and I think it's different for everybody and and and, you know after graduating college Still hyper focused. I'm going to become a licensed addictions counselor. My my parents, who were, were elderly, really, they were in their late 60s, I think. They were uh, they wanted to go to Ireland, where we have relatives. My grandparents are from Ireland, and they offered to, as a graduation present, to fly me to Ireland if I would drive the rental car for two weeks. Because oh. if you're over 65, you can't rent a car in Ireland. Oh, interesting. So I'm like, well, why don't I backpack around Europe for two months? after I'm done with the with you know driving them for two weeks in that Ireland. Sounds amazing. So I bought this Eurail pass in advance, which was seven hundred bucks, and it, it got me a completely open pass on the Eurail all over Europe for two months. And so um I 
lived out of a backpack mm-hmm. for two months doing that. And that's different than like backpacking to jobs and like yeah. working at Yellowstone for three months sure. because you're immersed with a bunch of people where what you're describing being a nomad um, alone. Yeah. I think, and I, I recently read something about this that I think what it, what it does for us is n- no one knows us. Yeah. And we're in a, you know, in my case, I landed on, in France. I took a, 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 a ferry from Ireland to France and I met this girl from Israel mm-hmm. who spoke French mm-hmm. and uh, spent about five days in Paris with her. Yeah. And when you don't know anybody and you're in a foreign country or in a foreign place or in another state or in the U.S. or whatever, and no one knows you, there's a f- sense of autonomy where you can be anyone. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think ourself is. I think yes. that's where becoming ourself exists is where there's no labels that others are putting on us and there's no family and there's no friends that know us that know our story yes and then you can just be anyone yeah you can just be it's like inventing or you can just invent yourself right in a way yeah you can you can become who you are or who you if you want to become someone who's different than you've been you can do that too because you're. It's really up to who, how you present yourself to the people you meet and who you yeah. encounter or who you interact with. Yeah, because they don't have, they don't know Chris as the drunk. They don't right. know Chris as the chef. You know, right. we we have these interactions with people throughout life, and each one of those interactions obviously builds us, develops us. You know, we take an experience, we take a lesson, whatever, and and, and we become more but that when we attach and take that story with us it it also limits us in what what we grow into next or how we behave or how we feel or how we think and and that could just be uh like Tracy as a mom is a little bit different than Tracy as a real estate agent Mm -hmm. and versus Tracy out in the mountains by herself with her beagle I mean exactly you go into another country or myself going down south in my van all by myself with all these people they don't know anything and right. you could tell them whatever you want or you cannot say a word at all and you get to escape all of that um all of those those stories those identities and how freeing yeah right? and you could behave differently mm-hmm. you can you can shape your behavior to be the person that you want to be yeah and um you know, we become, you know, you hear you hear musicians that are famous or, uh, you know, celebrities talk about how the world is kind of pigeonholing them and putting a label on them. Mm-hmm. Or if they're character actors, they become pigeonholed. Well, Facebook pigeonholes us. You know, we become known as the person who, and then just yeah. finish that sentence yes. with what, however you want. But... Um, Travel, especially solo travel, yes, frees you from that, and you're going to encounter people, especially if you seek out encounters along the way, and you, uh, you, you know, and you have new experiences with new people and new cultures, and and uh, you kind of, I think it's a way 
because I think all that stuff that we become on Facebook is, in a way, can be an escape from ourselves. Totally. Where um, by having these new experiences and new encounters and new ways of thinking and acting and being with people, um, we get maybe closer to who we are and who we were originally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Facebook is all about validation. You know, if I I mm. want to be seen as whatever, a good person, a smart person, a successful person, you put out what you're looking for validation. Right. And the funny, like, the funny part of all of this whole entire talk is that all of that is within us anyway. Right. <laughs> like, we don't, we are who we are without any of the stories, the identities, the labels, all of that stuff. We just, we just are. Right. And we don't need that validation. We don't need the experiences or the travel to have that same sense of who we are. We just have to, you know, be present in the moment and get to, to know oneself. And um, it is what it is. But that's a that's a really deep, dark uh, <laughs> yeah. rabbit hole. But yes. Um, so how to be genuine really is the yeah. challenge, right? How to stay genuine yes. and be genuine. Yes, and uh, just authentic to yeah. yourself, and it's it's so funny. Uh, I'm I'm working on a talk right now. Um, I'm getting up, applying for a TED talk, right? Yeah. And the topic is basically you have to know yourself before you can be yourself. And it's so funny that growing up, you're told all the time it's so cliche. Oh, honey, just be yourself. Just yeah. be yourself. Yeah. And I think the problem is that we don't even know ourselves because. Right. We're constantly stuck behind the label, stuck behind the story, stuck behind the identity of who our culture says we are, our yeah. parents say we are, our friends, and then who we say we are by attaching to an identity. Tracy, the real estate agent, Chris, the psychotherapist. Right. And it takes stripping all of that down. And a lot of times it's solo travel. It's solo backpacking. It's just alone silence. You can go to a meditation retreat and or you can just do it at home, but practicing silence and just yeah. really getting to know yourself before you can actually be yourself. That's perfect. And that I think what's key is that it always changes because yes. that TED Talk, 10 years from now, yes. you're going to be a different person. You'll be a different Tracy. I'll be a different Chris. Yep. And so those labels... Those labels might apply in a, in a moment, yeah. you know, because if we're just living moment to moment to moment and trying to stay in the present and we're evolving, so we're always going to be different and you're going to be looking back at Tracy, the real estate agent, or Tracy, the person who worked at Montana State Prison, mm -hmm. and I'm looking back. You know, I was just talking about this with somebody. It's It never fails that I can be out, like, and it's usually in Missoula because that's when I did most of my hard drinking and drugging during my 20s. Sure. Uh, it, that's that's 30 years ago. So I go, uh, I'm at, like, a festival, or I'm at, you know, Kettle House Amphitheater, and, and I'll hear, I'll, there'll be somebody, like, from the bar I used to hang out yeah. at, at the Rhino or something, or the Top Hat. And, you know, I had, like, tabs at these bars because I practically lived in them. Sure. And, and I'll hear Quigley. It's like, and it's somebody that I haven't seen that's drunk that sees me and has this snapshot in their mind of me, yeah. the outrageous drunk Chris Quigley mm -hmm. from 1985. Yeah. And, and they're talking to me and approaching me with that Same energy. <laughs> I remember the time you did, you know, uh, uh, you know, some 
completely embarrassing and insane story, humiliating story. And, 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 and I'll be with somebody, you know, my partner, somebody, a friend that's, that knows me now. And so there's this, uh, it just happened at big sky last year. This guy I haven't seen for 30 years goes, you're alive. That's happened a couple times that people were taking bets that I wouldn't see 30. Yeah. And people would go, oh, my God, I can't believe you're still alive. Yeah. And uh, and so even though, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking for opportunities to find ourself, our authentic self. And to, yeah. um, that, us, that was my authentic self at 25. Yeah. So... And that it's, is the point. Imagine like, if you held on to that. And that's, I, I feel like once we get out of chaos and self-destructive uh, behavior and we're, you know, normal, functioning, successful people even, attaching to who we are then is death to who you really are because it doesn't allow you to evolve. And it's And I feel like people get to a point where, I mean, so so you're leaving, you're okay leaving behind the destructive part of your life because everybody thinks you should, you know you should, there's health consequences, and everybody accepts and encourages that. But then you or we, people as, as a whole, have a hard time leaving behind who you are once you become successful or once you make it as a songwriter, as you, you maybe you're a college yeah. athlete, maybe yeah. you're a successful real estate agent, yeah. and People think, you know, pe who cares what people think? You, yourself, individually, I just experienced this. It's like, I'm ready to leave this identity behind yeah. and do what's next. There's a calling. There's a yeah. there's something bigger out there that's saying, it's time to set that down and move on to the next thing. Yeah. But I question myself and I say, oh my God, this would be crazy to do this because I attached to that role. Yeah. Well, I would never beat myself up for leaving behind being an alcoholic, being a right. drug user, but I had to grieve it. Yeah, exactly. I, I early, early in my recovery, I'd been sober for about six months to a year, and uh, six months probably. In fact, it was New Year's. I got sober on August sixth, and New Year's of that year, I'd gone to this Alcoholics Anonymous function at this dance, which was great. And I came home. It was like midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I got into bed, and all of a sudden, and this is just bizarre. I got super emotional, and I'm a pretty emotional person. I started sobbing, mm -hmm. and I was, like, heaving ugly tears <laughs> alone in the dark in my bed mm -hmm. for four hours. Freeing yourself. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was like this, um, because it, at that time, I was terrified. I'd never known anything else. Right. Uh, you know, there's this saying that from the time you take your first drug or drink, your growth kind of gets locked at that age. Well, I was oh, 12. Sure. And so at 31 years old, I had no idea who I was. Right. And I was terrified. And like I said, I had no idea how to do life. And, um, and I was grieving this, you know, I was known as the life of the party. I was known as, um, even though, you know, even though people, I run into them now that knew me from then, and they'll say, you know, even though you were kind of a train wreck and you would party until the sun came up, everybody looked at you as being a, just a really good guy and yeah. a good person. And so I think 
at, at our core, we're, we're something at our core to start with. Always. Before a self-destruction mm-hmm. starts or before we become something else mm-hmm. that's, that's um, you know, whatever it is, if it's negative. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think we're always something at our core. And I think staying plugged into that is important. Yeah, I think, always. I, I think being being alone is important to that. Being alone in a in a in a different, unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people is important to that. For but sure. I, and I but I think tapping into our potential is important to that. You know, yeah. um, whether it's creative potential, mm-hmm. um, self actualized, um, financial security potential, or knowledge potential college yeah. for me um you know i barely graduated high school in fact they altered my transcripts to give me my high school diploma and i it, it, it's a quick story but i uh went through high school commencement graduation ceremony this is a long ass time ago and I'm, I cross the stage, I get my little fake leather folder and go up into the bleachers and my parents are out, you know, in the audience. And I get back up into these bleachers and I open up my my folder and there's no diploma in there. Oh, no. And I look around and all the other kids sitting next to me in the stands had diplomas in their folder. So I go to the kegger that night and get tanked. And the next day is Sunday, I... I I wake up and go down to the kitchen and I, I say to my mom, you know, I think there's a problem. There's <laughs> there's no diploma in my folder. And she's like, oh, I'm sure that's not a problem. I'm like, all the other kids had diplomas. I'm, I think it Are might sure? be. Well, we'll call the school on Monday morning. So <coughs> she calls the school Monday morning. And they're like, yes, Mr. Quigley. We, uh, Mr. The principal, Mr. Williams, uh, says that you and Mr. Quigley and Chris should probably come up to the school. Oh, boy. So I'm like, all right. So we load into this 1966 four-door Buick LeSabre, this huge boat with a, a big bench front seat. So we're all sitting in the front seat. And we get up to the school. We go into the, the principal, the vice principal, and the assistant vice principal are all in this office. And three days earlier on that Friday, mm-hmm. I was out in a van smoking weed with a bunch of friends, and there and in the parking lot of the school, and this is when you could go to jail to prison for like a joint in the seventies. Oh, wow. This sure. is this is nineteen seventy seven. All of a sudden, the doors to the van swing open, and it's like a scene from Cheech and Chong. This <laughs> billows, the smoke billows out of the van, and it's those three: the principal, the vice principal, the assistant vice principal, oh. and it's the last day of school, Friday. Okay. So they're like. Uh, we, we think you bet. They didn't call the cops, which they used, which they typically would do, and you'd get sure. arrested. You guys get or be- better get back in the school. So cut back to this Monday morning, three days later, uh-huh. with my parents in his office, and uh, and so my dad says, well, "Why are we here?" And the principal's like, "Well, Chris is three credits short. He flunked Bill oh, Riley's no. class." Now, Bill Riley is there, this teacher who's friends with my dad. My uh-huh. dad owned a business on Main Street. He owned a sporting goods store, a ski shop. Okay. So Bill Riley runs this class called DECA, Distributive Education. Mm-hmm. And it's for vocational students, which was I was because that was the easiest class. Well, <laughs> I had flunked 
distributive education, which is a, a class about sales, teaching you how to do sales, okay. which is pathetic because my dad's a salesman. You, so, you got this. <laughs> so, so my dad's like, all right, he's, he flunked Bill Riley's class. This is embarrassing. So he says to the principal, well, what does he need to do? Does he need to come back and, and repeat? And the, the principal goes, no, Mr. Quigley, we don't want him back. Oh, my goodness. And we've been talking about, that's a quote. You know how <laughs> you, have a, you have a snapshot in your brain yeah. of like something like, this was stuck in my brain forever. And so we've been talking about it, and we've decided we're just going to fudge the transcript and give him his diploma. And he literally hands me the oh diploma. My so my dad, of course, is just ashamed. I'm like wiping my brow yeah. like that was close i better go get drunk yeah and celebrate. yeah this is yeah i've got a diploma this is sweet so we go we go out we get in the we get in the buick and i'll climb in the front seat and we're riding down this hill our high school is up on this hill so we're coming down the hill from french street and my there's a lot of uncomfortable silence of course sure my dad leans across my mom from the front seat and he says you better get a job. That's all I can say. <laughs> and, I, oh. and my mom, in her tactless, well-wishing, uh, well-meaning tone, says, "Yes, honey, you should probably try to find a vocation. You're obviously not college material." Oh. So. And that can stick. Check this out. Okay. So, towards the end of my drinking, I'm about probably 29, like the year before I'm getting sober. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm there with one of my old fraternity brothers who was also working in this restaurant that I worked at. And uh, he's studying, he's getting his master's in psychology. Mm. He died of a drug overdose later, by the way. Interesting. He, he's super, super bright. We're at our Coke dealer's house at 4 o'clock in the morning sitting around doing Coke and drinking. And, and, and this guy, Tim, who I actually ran into 30 years later at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Amazing. Amazing. He, uh, he says to my friend, Dion, so Dion, you're getting your master's in psychology. And Chris, what's your major? And what do you think I said? Uh, culinary arts. No, I said, I'm not in college. I don't have the aptitude. I'm, oh. not, I'm not college material. I repeated yeah. what my mom had said to me yeah. 10 years earlier. Interesting. And so... Um, so by the time I got to college, I'm like, I'm clean and sober, and I'm 30, I'm in my 30s, you know, I'm sitting in a class of freshmen, 18, 19-year-olds in, in this social work class, and I'm thinking, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> I can't do this. Like, I'm still stuck in that. I can't sure. do this. And we'll talk later about this, because I, I suffer less so now, but severe, severe, um, uh, um, that syndrome, imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. So, and, and it's because of all those kind of failures. Sure. So, but my first quarter in college, my first semester, I get a four point. Wow. I'm like, I'm doing homework. Yeah, this isn't like, right. And I'm like, this is easy. <laughs> I'm like, I'm actually doing homework and this is easy. Yeah. And, uh, and so I graduate with high honors. Like four years later, I've got like a 4.9. Wow. And, um, and that same, you know, my mother sitting in this bleachers at the University of Montana for this college graduation. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the 
the president of the university during his commencement speech is quoting me from an interview they did w from me oh, wow. for volunteerism as part of my social work program. So my parents are hearing, you know, their son getting quoted by the dean, by the president of the university. <laughs> and it's the same mother that told me I wasn't college material. Yeah. You know, so I think that story fits into everything we're talking about about these different iterations of ourselves Absolutely. and these beliefs about ourselves and whether they're beliefs that others have imposed on us or beliefs about ourselves. And, and um, so, you know, I, I graduated in 94 and did that three months in Europe. Okay. And came back and, um, and what got me to Butte, what brought me to Butte was I got a job at the Montana Chemical Dependency Center here in Butte, MCDC. Okay. As, as, a, as a drug and alcohol counselor. Okay. And uh, at 30, 35 years old, bought my first little house, the little little bungalow, the one-bedroom bungalow oh. down on Colorado Street. And and, um, and so I had a driver's license. Yeah, so you're really adulting yeah. at this point. <laughs> exactly, so yeah. you're Actually, about 35? I'm 35, yeah. 35 years old. So... So at that point, are you pursuing this for financial gain? What, what's your number one reason, I guess, at this point? Probably. You realize its purpose at this point. Probably stability. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, yeah, I graduated college. I'm 35. And, and it was, well, I mean, it was also my, my purpose. You know, I had, I had made that decision in that, in that counseling session in 1989 that I, I could be a therapist and that that would be a, a I was looking for a sense of purpose I guess and you know I was pretty directionless in life even like during my 20s when I was really being a chef and practicing alcoholism I was I was playing music <clears throat> and I was writing music a little bit uh -huh. but right about the same time that I got sober and I started college I really dove into being a singer-songwriter. I was writing tons of songs. I did a couple um, broadcasts on national public radio um, through NPR and, um, and was putting bands together. And so all through college, that's kind of how I put myself through college. But um, getting that job, buying a house, settling down in Butte, Montana, um, it really was about purpose, I think, um, and a sense of stability. But also that purpose was, being a therapist was really about um, sharing my experience with others and serving others and helping others. And, okay. you know, it was cool. I, I started that job and um, I was, within a few months, I was getting letters from former clients that were, I was getting letters saying, like, thank you for saving my life. You know, that's the, the things you taught me are completely changing yeah. my, my life. And so that felt pretty good, and it still feels good. You know, I'm yeah. getting emotional talking about it yeah. because um, I was having an effect on people. Yeah. And that, um, so why would, when you have the personal experience with alcoholism, what would make you want to shift to sex offender treatment? It, I mean, because I imagine it would have been a really rewarding to help with something that you have personal yeah. experience with. So after four years at MCDC here in Butte, doing doing a, that counseling as a 
uh, with a with a BA with a bachelor's degree and undergraduate kind of work. I I wanted more. Um, you can relate to this. I'm kind of always wanting more. Yeah. I tend to just be an ambitious person. Yeah. I'm a Capricorn. You know, the like the it, I was just in Glacier and I saw this mountain goat and I'm like, those mountain goats are climbers, right? Yeah. And, and and that's the analogy that a lot of astrologers use for Capricorns is they tend to be climbers. Sure. And I am always climbing for something yeah. up higher, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I decided I was going to go back for a master's degree. So uh, that was at age, uh, about age 38, 39. Um, I enrolled in a master's program uh, through Walla Walla College from Washington. They opened a satellite campus in Missoula. So I was able to commute, still work full time. I was working 40 hours a week at MCDC. Mm -hmm. And then on Fridays, I was working four tens Monday through Thursday. On Fridays, I would commute, uh, do 12 hours of classes on Friday three hours of classes on Saturday morning. I did that for 12 months with one week off for Christmas. Wow. Um, and uh, got a master's degree and got offered a job at Montana State Prison okay. in, in the mental health program, um, just working with mentally ill people. It wasn't focused on substance or addictions or sex offenders. Um, you know, there's a there's a whole department, a, a whole program at, Univers- at Montana State Prison for oh. mentally ill people with like severely mentally ill schizo- right. schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, people that have committed severe, you know, extreme violent crimes, murder and stuff. Well, but, but have severe mental illness. Uh, and <coughs> I didn't really like it. Mm. I was, uh, you know, I was a group therapy guy for one. I oh. love that group energy of people yes. sharing with each other. And sharing their experiences and you know it was kind of part alcoholics anonymous in a way too uh-huh. you know but addictions counseling was all about group therapy uh you try group group therapy with schizophrenics and they're talking to themselves and and it's yeah. chaotic and and these folks with severe mental illness aren't gonna get better they're on right. psychotropic drugs that maintain them yeah. but i was in a I, my background is goal-oriented therapy, getting better, mm-hmm. you know, growth, personal growth, and, and becoming healthy. And, um, and, and so I, after about a year, uh, God, I was doing mental statuses in, in the um, maximum security unit and death row and just a lot of darkness and, yes. and people that aren't getting better. And, and so... I was feeling kind of directionless and I'm in the chow hall one day and, um, you know, where the employees eat and sat down with the director of the sex offender treatment program. Her name was Sandy Heaton. Yeah. Wonderful woman. Yeah. And, uh, she said, how do you like your job? You know? And I'm like, you know, I don't really like it very much. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a lack of purpose. And, you know, my background is in group therapy and people getting better and, and goal-oriented therapy. And she said, well, we've got two openings in the sex offender program, and that's what this is, you know, that's what that program's all about. And uh, and I said, ag- again, a snapshot in time where I have this mental, indelible memory. I said, I want work with those people. Interesting. And so I thought I knew what I didn't want to do. Yeah. I, that's how I always frame that when I share this story with people. I was sure that I didn't, yeah. Want to do that. Right. 
you know, I didn't, I didn't always know what I wanted to do, but I thought I did. You know, I was always goal focused. You know, I'm going to be a chemical dependency counselor. I'm going to be a singer songwriter. I was sure I didn't want to be work with those people, right? right? So I had this bigoted. Uh, I had this bigoted. It taught me at that moment. Taught me a lot about bigotry, frankly. Mm-hmm. So I had this bigoted belief about those people. And she was like, of course, she was kind of miffed, you know. She's like, oh, okay, well, fuck you, basically. <laughs> you know? I'm sure she was thinking that. But yeah. anyway, so like literally two weeks later, the director of my program, this great guy, uh, Drew Shoning, he said, oh, by the way, we're working out a trade with the sex offender treatment program where they're going to carry our on-call pager uh, one week per month, and in exchange – we're going to um, co-facilitate sex offender groups with them. That and sounds you start like divine today. intervention. <laughs> right? I know, exactly. The so, universe presented the opportunity to you, oh and my you were God. like a jerk face about it. And then the universe I is know. like, oh, okay, I'm going to show you. <laughs> I know. So, so I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, so literally it's that day, too. Like an hour later, I'm sitting in this sex offender group. With those people. Yeah, with those people. <laughs> and um, and there's this guy who became a really good friend of mine, uh, Fred Lemons, was facilitating the group. And, uh, and I've done literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of sex offender groups since that. And that group were some of the worst stories <laughs> of, of horror and heinous sex acts that yeah. I had ever heard that I won't share here. Sure. But in thousands of groups since i've never heard it was all downhill from there you're saying no i'm like no it was all i mean it was all uphill from there it was like it was easy yeah i guess it is all downhill downhill. yeah Yeah. it was easy from there yeah i'm like oh my god these are horror stories but here's what i saw like there was this guy that just was just like tearfully sobbing out of remorse and guilt and shame for what he'd done to his biological daughter, and this guy was practically suicidal. He felt so horrible, and this guy's working really hard at becoming a different person. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's what I saw, and that's what stuck out was that these people are working as hard or harder than addicts that I'd worked with who wanted a different life. People like me who wanted better for themselves who sure. wanted to become productive members of society yeah who didn't want to be on the outside looking in and um and then i started looking into the research about the effectiveness of treatment and started um learning that a lot of the myths about sex offenders are really just that they're myths that they always reoffend, and that and that recidivism rates are super high when in actuality recidivism rates are super low actually and that and that treatment can reduce recidivism by like 400 percent wow and so so i became a believer and i and i immediately regretted my prejudice and bigotry about those people and saw people that were really not much different than the rest of us and right. did one bad thing that they wish they'd never done. Right. And in most cases, um, you know, actual pedophilia people that have a, uh, an ingrained attraction to children and want to molest children are the vast majority of actual sex offenders. Even, ch- even sex offenders who have put their hand on a child 
in many cases, and in most cases, I would say, it's a very, very um, uh, exceptional set of circumstances where they're intoxicated or there's, uh, uh, you know, severe problems in their lives with mental illness or, or problems with family employment circumstances and substance use. And it's a single contact event that, that even under uh, a polygraph lie detector test, they, they can truthfully say that it only happened one time and, and that and it's not something that they would ever do again. And so I started really learning about the science of it. And I was like fascinated by it on the one hand, but also felt like I could really help these people um, become more whole humans and yeah. and achieve those goals of being productive members of society. And, um, and so I did, I, I took, I, I, I approached Sandy Heaton and said, Hey, remember that thing? First of all, let me apologize <laughs> for what I said, but um, I'm really interested in um, in applying for that job. And, Interesting. Um, and she practically offered it me right there, and she's like, well, we have to go jump through the hoops of an interview. But um, I interviewed for it, got the job, and a year later they asked me to be the director of the program. So, so I was the director of the sex offender treatment program a year later. Yeah. You know, and then um, – open I started moonlighting here in Butte I opened a private practice there was nobody offering uh that kind of counseling to sex offenders who are on probation and parole in the community in Butte right. they were having to drive to Helena or drive Which to Bozeman. Which is not practical when it's you've not been practical. released from prison it's just no, not. It's no and it's not good for community safety no. either and so I I made contact with probation and parole here in Butte and rented an office for 250 bucks a month Right across the street here. From where we're sitting. Yeah. yeah. And and um and I immediately had like twelve clients. Yeah. And I, I was off and running in private practice, moonlighting at night, running, you know, weekly group therapy and still working at the prison. So I first of all, like I know sex offender treatment, um, just pedophilia, all of those topics are things that the world likes to just pretend doesn't exist. Yeah. And they like to, you know, look, you know, you, for example, why would you want to work with those people? Exactly. And the funny thing is, is that they, the, our communities need people like you in order to help, quote unquote, those people heal. And if they heal and they're no longer a danger, wouldn't we want that? The community, <laughs> like, uh, communities are safer. We, right. I mean, you, anybody who gets me on this topic uh, has to hear me refer to research and science and what we know about it. And anybody who's unfortunate enough to have to sit next to me on an airplane and ask me about my job, <laughs> I, stuck I, there I, <laughs> I do a lot of myth-busting. That's great. I mean, that's uh, because it's an opportunity. You know, I've done a lot of testimony on Capitol Hill, as you can imagine, I'm, we, we've got a, um, a statewide organization called the Montana Sex Offender Treatment Organization of people who, who specialize in what I do, and I'm the president of that association. Um, uh, and, and I travel the state sometimes giving talks, and I spend a lot of time in legislative sessions trying to educate lawmakers about the, the facts about sex offenders and reoffense rates and community safety. And it's become kind of a, a drumbeat um, where I, uh, you know, 
try to educate people about yeah. facts, uh, about those that are really dangerous, mm -hmm. but more importantly, about how to treat and how to deal with and how to work with those that really aren't much more dangerous after having gone through treatment. They're really not, their reoffense rates aren't really much more higher than the general population. Right. I've said that as a, you know, I do, I, I do a lot of expert testimony on witness stands because aside from being a therapist, I do what are called psychosexual evaluations. So sure. I do like a forensic profiling and evaluations uh, of, uh, and psych evals on sex offenders that are being uh, sentenced for court systems. Sure. Um, and so I do a lot of expert testimony, and I do a lot of that myth busting from a from a witness stand too. Right. Where um, you know where I, I tell a, a courtroom full of people and a judge, you know, if this person is successful in treatment and they do their time and they reintegrate into a community that's supportive, they're not going to be much higher risk than the people sitting in this courtroom. Right. And that freaks people out. Yeah. Because we want to. We want to pigeonhole and label people, yep. and we want, we want, we want. You know, look at the news. We want somebody to point our finger at and go, "I'm not like those people." Yep. You know, and who better than we can all agree that those people, that sex offenders, are worse than murderers. Chain. Oh, they're yep. worse than murderers. You oh, know, yeah. and yeah. so yeah, it and was it's funny. On that note, I just want to point out it's really interesting that you say that because. We talked about letting go of identity and letting go of, like, you and your destructive behavior. These exactly. guys never get to let go of that story. They never get to let go of that identity. Our society puts that label publicly That's right. and labels them for the rest of their lives. And your role is to put a tier system in place right. for them so that the, the public knows how dangerous or how much treatment right. their, their likelihood of them to... Um, to reoffend, but as a human being, and I know it's so hard for some people to even see, quote unquote, those people as human beings, but the fact is they are, yeah. um, to, to be able to look at them and say with some sort of compassion that those people never get to leave that story behind again. That's right. And your role in this whole thing, you know, you're not the guy that's defending them and making them uh, you know, allowing them to be victims. You're the you're the person that's in there healing them so that they can come out and be productive people and keep the community safe. Well, there's times when I have to recommend this guy's very dangerous. He's a monster. He needs to go to prison for a super long time. Those people exist. For they're sure. they're they're in the tiny minority, but they do exist. I just had one recently where I had to testify to this person's dangerousness. But you're right, and the truth is, people who most of them are n that c that can that are, have committed or get convicted of sex offense are not that different than the rest of us. Right. And um, and and they're going to answer to that, and they get labeled for that one bad thing mm -hmm. on television, radio, yep, TV. Uh, uh, newspapers, Social the internet, media. the internet, everywhere. Every all you job have to do interview. is every job interview. Every job interview they do, they have to tell the yep. the the, interv the interviewer that they're a convicted sex every offender. Every move they e make. Every potential landlord. Oh, by the way, oh, they're ready to hand you the keys. But oh, by the way, I'm a convicted sex offender. Yep. And there's and no so there's no protection discrimination wise 
in they're place, the one person that there is no protection there is for. no protection exactly and, but they still have to live somewhere they still have to work right in, in order and that's these are like the the backwards things in order for them to not reoffend, you know and to they have to have like a stable and um human they're humans they need yeah. everything that every other human needs they have basic survival they have to eat they have to be able to live somewhere they have to feel right. safe and all of those things are jeopardized when you've got a target on your back at all times you are having a hard time getting a job and if you get a job it's most likely not going to be one of the high paying ones so they're going to suffer through poverty all of these things just making it extra difficult to be to just be <laughs> yeah most of us I can't really wrap our brain around what that's like. Right. And, but I will say that in my experience, and I have now, after 25 years, probably worked with 10,000 sex offenders. That sounds crazy. That is crazy. Maybe 5,000. Okay. I might be exaggerating. Get back to me with that real number. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, between the prison and the community, I have a treatment right. program here in Butte, and I have a large one in Missoula. Um 99 out of 100 of them are very low risk. They go out, they have families, they are productive. They, they spend their whole lives living down that thing they did when they were 22 with yep. that 14 or 15-year-old girl. Yep. Or, um, and in, in the best case scenario, if they serve out their probation long enough, they can petition the court to what the, the legal term is to be relieved of the duty to register on the adult violent and sexual offender registry. That's and that's kind of the golden ticket. If you can if you can get relieved of that duty, you're no longer obligated to inform landlords mm-hmm. or potential employers. Uh, but you're still uh, you still live with it. And as you know yeah. and um and I guess, you know, to get back to like I feel like it's really rewarding mm-hmm. what to you know to work with people that are working hard at repairing their, their lives right. and and paying a restitution and a debt to society right. and um and restoring some of their dignity you know mm-hmm. I'll tell you when you treat one of those people with dignity because they get treated so badly most of their sure. life, uh they really appreciate it you know it's uh it's 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 a rewarding thing to do for me. So one question on that, and, I, and then we can we can move on to the, the probably the last topic because I think we're getting sure. close to an hour here. What's the statistic on the number of people who offend that were victims themselves of sex offense of a sex offense? You know, it's a it's a question that I get asked all the time, and there are there's thirty years worth of research with with over thirty thousand sex offenders in Canada and other English speaking countries. There is not a direct correlation to having been sexually abused. Interesting. I know. It's it's more about early childhood trauma in general. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about um, early exposure to sexualization, whether it's seeing pornography at an early age or living in a home where... Um, you were exposed to any form of sexual right. e- energy, to, to lack of a better word, uh, but mainly early childhood trauma uh, and and uh, detached or um, poor relationships with fathers. 
very few of the sex offenders that I work with have good relationships with fathers or, or have stable fatherhood in their in their life. Wow. Um, but that's probably true for people with a lot of addictions and sure. early childhood trauma. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this thing that gets used a lot called the ACE score, uh, adverse childhood uh, events, where there's like, I can't remember, 8 to 10, 12 um, I should know this, but the ACE, the ACE test, uh, anybody can take it. And it kind of scores you for, for your propensity for failed relationships, addictions, um, uh, uh, you know, trauma later in life, problems with, uh, depression, depression and anxiety. And, and so, um, it's more about that, but it's a question that I get asked a lot, but we, we have not found a, a direct causal link connecting those two dots myth busted yeah. yeah i actually through working at the prison was actually told that 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 was the number one indicator was not by a, not by an expert like me no i guess so, they missed that coffee talk right and and um and what we do know is that um and it, the the thought just slipped my mind god it was right there um yeah sorry it's okay. Um, yeah, it, it's not as direct a causal relationship. Fascinating. Um, but we do know that that um, that reoffense rates for those that are treated mm. versus untreated, e- even untreated reoffense rates are pretty low. But for those, unless you're a psychopath or you're a dyed-in-the-wool pedophile, that means a person who's not attracted to adults at all. At all. Okay. And they're so rare. Um, but reoffense rates generally nationwide and across the board are already pretty low. But in Montana, for those that are treated, the the, the um, research that we do is really good mm. for reduced recidivism. Good to yeah. know. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, thank you for the work that you yeah. do on that because, like we said, that keeps our community safer and um, it's admirable work. Somebody's got to do it. And the funny thing is, is when I am adamant that when you follow your purpose clearly you were you had some divine intervention to get involved in this and it's probably because you were so good at it you are so passionate and have been so impactful with the amount of um statewide advocating you know educating all of those five to ten thousand people Mm -hmm. that you've touched their lives there's clearly a reason why you did that and you are benefited in resources when you're when you're following your purpose and you're doing what you're meant to do the universe gives you all the resources and abundance that's necessary yeah it uh, and and, uh, yes and uh, and the private practice it pays well there aren't many i'll say this there aren't many people who want to do it yeah i knew i didn't want to do it right Right. and that's what most people feel so as a therapist with an an expert witness uh who who does a lot of these evaluations um it pays pretty good yeah i meant just in terms of you're like oh and before you know it i was the director uh, within a year and before you know it i opened private practice i had 15 clients at my door that's how it works when we follow purpose it's like i wonder if i do this and then all of a sudden it, it when you're on the right i guess the point is is when you're on the right path the door opens and it flows easily it happens easily when we're like putting square he- square peg in round hole right. because this is what I want to do, you right. know, you didn't, you knew that that was the one thing you didn't want to do, but yet 
the world had a different idea for you, and then it you were rewarded with all of it the does, abundance. It does, it does flow, but at the same time, I, I someone said this to me recently about intuition mm-hmm. and and following, uh, like just you know, I love the I love the <laughs> the movie Yes Man. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because just say yes, right? Uh-huh. It's kind of a new agey thing, but it's really kind of true, uh-huh. and. Um, I think if we say yes to things that make us nervous, uh-huh. I think when we're when we're going down the wrong road, we're we're not nervous or or uncomfortable. Sure. I think taking on challenges should make us a little nervous. Yeah, stretching like, that comfort zone. Yeah, like can I do this? Yeah. And um, and. To go back to that day in 1989 when I went to my first AA meeting and I'm like looking at the world on Higgins Avenue after that meeting going, I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to get a car. Right. I'd had my driver's license taken away at 20 years old and really never got it back until I was in my early 30s. (laughs) Hence the hitchhiking. Exactly. (laughs) And so I'm like... Okay, so it's like, okay, I can do this. It's like you hear people say, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. It's like that's kind of what building a real estate business or what, sure. whatever whatever it is. Yes. If you have a big idea, writing a song mm-hmm. or booking a gig or um, I'm like, can I do that? Yeah. You know, and then you just have to fake it. Right. I and, agree. Or building out and designing and building a house. Yes. You know, I was taking, I've taken out loans having no idea how I was going to pay them back, yes. you know, and taking risks. And, uh, and, um, but also really closing my eyes and visualizing what it is that I want to create or, you know, whether it's building a house mm-hmm. or, or, or a career, or a job, renting that office space. Yeah. You know. We don't know what's ahead. We don't have the how. We don't have the perfect. We have the idea in our head of what it could look like, but we don't have the the know. It's trusting, and that's that faith that, you know, I'm going to give this a shot, and I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to put my passion. I'm going to put my energy, my creative drive, whatever it may be, into it, and have faith that it transpires, which Tell me about that, speaking of, because I envy you uh, and admire you well, because you get you. the... <laughs> uh, we have equal admiration for each other and when it comes to this topic about purpose and creativity. Yeah. You know, and some of us, I mean, I've, I had to fight against a message that I got at 18 uh-huh. by my mom that I'm obviously not college material. Sure. In other words, I think, and I think it's probably true for you, but it was especially true... Well, we're always talking about our generation compared to this one. Uh-huh. I think it's true. I think kids are basically grow up being told what they can't do, what they're not capable yes. of. We've got to keep do, them safe, Chris. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do this. <laughs> and my parents allowed me to be pretty reckless. I was hitchhiking when I was 14. <laughs> I, I, I was a freshman in high school, and my parents let me throw a, a sleeping bag in a mm-hmm over my shoulder and hitchhiked to the beach in Rhode Island from Connecticut. Wow. With my buddy Vinnie McGrath, and he was 15. Yeah. You know, so 
but they were us. But that same mother told me, I, I, you know, I was obviously not college material. Yeah. So I, I had to, sh- I had to shake off a lot of you can't do that. Right. And I think most of us spend our adult lives shaking off you can't do that, or we spend our adult lives believing you can't do that, 100%. and and just stay locked in in whatever um, makes us feel safe. Yeah, but it's actually n- I don't think that's safe. Oh, I completely you know? agree. I feel like it's the biggest thing that holds us back. It, I mean, the idea that a nine to five, a four hundred one k. I mean, that is just a, a it, it is a made up imaginary safety net that a lot of times people think it's a safety net, but it's actually like this barrier that you can't get through that prevents you from taking the big step into the next thing. And whatever that is, it doesn't have to be money. It's whatever you value. You know, if it's, if it is money because that makes you feel, um, secure and great, if it's experiencing things, great. But if you've got that net and you refuse to step through it to give up what you know or what you've been told you're able or capable of because you got to keep the security and the safety for your family, for yourself, or whatever, it, it prevents you from going where you're meeting your potential. I think a lot of it is predictability. Mm, we want to know. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Based on t- what <laughs> we're being told today, and we don't want unpredictability. Yeah, and we'll never and, know. And um, and for whatever reason, I've been reckless my whole life. To use a lack of a better word, um, I. I like unpredictability and, and, um, I am probably fearless to a degree that it's caused me some harm. Yeah. I've made some bad investments. I've been, I've made some good investments. Um, you know, but I, everything hasn't been a home run. Um, you know, I've, uh, made some, big mistakes with my recklessness and relationships. But and you took the shot. Like they oh say, yeah. Michael Jordan, how yeah. many shots did he miss? Yeah. You know, he wouldn't be Michael Jordan if he didn't at least take the shot. And exactly. that's the point. Yeah. Is people like you will take the shot. They, like, I don't know, like, for example, when you tell, okay, so I'm going to Nepal for a month in October. Oh, nice. Yeah. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I've, don't know. I have yeah. a podcast guest that I interviewed, and he has a nonprofit, and they do charity work all across the nice. world. I'm like, send me to Nepal. That sounds great. What's it going to be? I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I yeah. don't speak uh, Nepalian. Nepalese. I, Nepalese. Yeah. I don't even know what the language is. I do now. But yeah. anyway, um, yeah, you're, I'm just going to go, and whatever happens is going to happen. But point of that, of saying that, is that the second that I tell somebody I'm going to Nepal, first they say, Oh, well, a lot of them say, where's that? <laughs> they don't even know yeah, what it yeah. is, which is fine. Uh, but the others are like, oh, my God, that's dangerous. And the second thing is, is you're going by yourself. And it, because they don't feel it's safe or it's the unknown. And how right. could you ever just go to another country with no agenda yeah. and just be there for a month? Because, it, you know, for, and then, then all the myths come out. That's not a safe country. Well, right. actually, it is. I mean, yeah, yeah, in general, yeah. our country is more... <laughs> dangerous you know yeah oh my gosh flying over there I mean you even get people like I can't believe you'd go on a plane for that long that's dangerous just yeah (laughs) the opportunities that are lost yeah I've had a a lot of people um in my endeavors tell me why I shouldn't or couldn't do something I guess you know and um there are I guess there are people that 
I, I, I'm not going to judge that, no, I guess, if you need predictability right. in your life. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. And I need adventure, and I need new experiences. Same. And, uh, and, and so uh, I, I, that's, that's not, you know, yeah. I've never been that person to be afraid of much. You know, I remember, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember how much I used to like jumping off bridges and cliffs into water, yeah. you know, when I was, I don't do it now, but, um, yeah, you know, anything. people are like, why, why would you do that? Don't do that. <laughs> Or I, I've never jumped out of a plane, and I don't have any plan to. But um, you know, I yeah, I I want to I want to experience what I haven't experienced yet. And uh, Nepal would be on the yes. bucket list. You know, I cl- I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and I thought about it. Some of the people on my team had climbed Mount Everest or been to right. Everest Base Camp and stuff. And uh, we have a mutual friend, Trudy Healy, that did oh, the yeah. Everest Base Camp. I and, remember that. And she did Nepal and, and actually China. She went down into Waxha. And, um, and yeah, I, I want new experiences. And, and, um, and you know, coming to Butte was a new experience when I graduated college. And people, yeah. you know, this was the early 90s. And people were like, oh, you have to live in Butte. You know, <laughs> Butte had this reputation. And people in Missoula thought they were so cool I guess but I completely fell in love with Butte and I've been yeah, trying to trying to convince my Missoula girlfriend to move back here with me ever since I left you know so you just never you just, you just don't, don't know, know you know you try. Yeah. yeah and and uh you know and from I don't know it's I think adventure is all you know we talked a little bit about creative process I, I think that's part about cre- it, we're creating a new experience. We're creating, um, you know, having children and creating a family is creating. It's a yep. creative process. I think a lot of people sell themselves short on what they think creativity has to be about writing something or painting something or, right. you know, building something or, you know, I, I mean, I, I was an art major in college when I first went to college. I always, art was always my favorite class in school, and I always played in bands, and and, and I always loved music and did concert choir and stuff. But, you know, people who decorate the inside of their house or decide what clothes yes. they're going to wear that day are, are being creative. But It's in all of us. It's it's yeah. part of our, our entire being, and it it flows out of us when we're whole and when we're in alignment mm-hmm. with our with our true lo- with our with ourselves like when we're just in alignment uh right. and, and you're right it can be it can be anything it could be the person that, that gardens you're creating this beautiful garden yep. it doesn't even have to be beautiful it's something that you are making like you said yep. a business it could be a business and you don't have to be good at anything i think that's where you know abstract art for example i don't understand that but when I get to a different part in my life and I have different experiences, something might click with me where then I resonate with it. And that's, that's it. There's billions of people on this earth and whatever you create, it's an inspiration. And I don't know, maybe that's not the right word for it, but traveling creates inspiration. Um, writing, cre- like when I read somebody else's write, it inspires me. When I'm in nature, it inspires me. And then when I feel inspired, my creativity flows. It's that interconnectedness between people. Connection. connection. The whole time you're talking yes. about inspiration, I'm, I'm like, thinking What's the word. I'm thinking connection because yeah. um, whether you're, you know, at the Saturday morning 
market and yep. you bring home some perennials mm-hmm. to plant in your garden and you connect with that plant and put it in the ground yep. or um or you're connecting with a creative process mm-hmm. and uh you're connecting with people on your team with right. with butte real estate group mm-hmm. and or um or we're connecting with a place like Nepal, yes. you're going to go there. there, you're going to connect, or you're connecting, um, you know, with people who are like-minded, or even people who aren't like-minded, right. and you find something to connect with them about. Um, or maybe it's the photography that I take when I'm there. I'm absolute, not a photographer, absolutely. but if I snap pictures and I catch, I don't know, like the human element of something, and it inspires somebody here that sees maybe a Facebook post when I get back and they're like, oh my God, wow. And that inspires, they feel connected mm-hmm. to the person in the picture. Or maybe they feel connected to me for my experience, but it all goes through. And then in that piece of creativity, a simple photograph while in a place that I feel inspired by has created an image that touches somebody here in Butte or in Minnesota. I've got a yeah. friend there, whatever it may be. And I think that inspiration creativity it's all the same and a lot of us travel to find inspiration we listen to music to find inspiration and i think that's our you know it's our deep need for creativity like creativity is the effect of inspiration and Mm -hmm. it and that's when we're really it's aligning us it's connecting it's keeping us as a big universe together and connected yeah yeah and i've I've done some research on on consciousness and um and this is going to sound bizarre and completely um completely trippy but i I have this belief about creativity about connection and consciousness Mm -hmm. and what it is and you know i think people who are on a search for god for instance Mm -hmm are really on a search for consciousness and connectedness. Totally. And I think it's already there. I don't think we have to search for it. But Within ourselves. But physicists and scientists are studying it now and about consciousness and about uh, on a subatomic level Mm -hmm. and what atoms are and what they're doing. Interesting. And, and you know, Eastern religions have, talked about this for 4,000 years. (laughs) Western's just kind of catching up. Indigenous (laughs) cultures have talked about this too. You know, whether it's an indigenous culture in Australia or Africa or North America, Mm -hmm. they've talked about this. But the the scientific study on consciousness and and on a subatomic level, there's this book called Biocentrism that's really awesome. And there's two of them. And there's actually a third one now that's fiction because he kind of ran out of ways to describe the same thing. Yeah. And it's about consciousness on a biological but also subatomic particle level. And so physicists are studying atoms and, and, and subatomic particles of atoms and specifically photons. And there's two really interesting, uh, to me, the most interesting and mind-blowing things that they've found on the, are these photons, which are basically uh, light, forms of light energy, photons. Uh, 
the first thing they discovered, which blew their mind, and actually Einstein talked about this on a theoretical level a hundred years ago, is that they're that they have a consciousness, they have an awareness. So these researchers in Boston in this lab started observing photons. And they observed them with monitors, but then they observed them with cameras. And then they noticed something. One day, one observer was watching them through a camera. They they had clo- basically closed circuit uh, uh, microscopic camera photography to observe these photons in action. When researchers entered the labs, the photons changed their behaviors. What? And they altered their behavior in reaction to the things that the researchers were doing in the lab in real time. Interesting. So it gets cooler. (coughs) So these researchers in Boston take these photons. Well, photons can be replicated. You can turn them into twins as many times as you want. So they created these twin photons. And photons can also be projected around the world in real time on fiber electric systems. Okay. And when I say real time, these physicists were describing like trilliseconds, not milliseconds, but like trilliseconds instantaneously. Wow. Around the world, right? So they do this lab experiment where they split this photon into a twin. This thing that they're observing to be conscious, right? And changing its behavior Uh when a researcher enters the room. They send its twin to Australia, to the other side of the planet, 10,000 miles away, to a lab of physicists. In real time. In real time. And so the physicists, and they're communicating the physicists with clocks in sure. real time, uh-huh. these two, now two photons and their behaviors. Huh. The researcher, this is a very simple and elegant experiment. The researcher in Boston takes a mirror, uh-huh. and a photon is like a beam of light. Uh-huh. The researcher in Boston takes a mirror and holds it at a very specific angle, at a very specific moment in front of the photon in Boston. Uh-huh. Without a mirror, the photon no. in Australia replicated what the, its twin was doing in Boston. What? When was this done? What was like the time? You'll have to read biocentrism. Oh, I'm going to read I, it. <laughs> I, read, I, read, I read biocentrism like two or three years ago. Okay. And, um, Fascinating. It's it's baffling. Yeah. So this this physicist, he's actually a biochemist slash physicist. He's brilliant, and he worked in Boston. He's written two books on his theory about this and what it means for us as people who live in this physical plane in this world of atoms. Right. Everything in this room is a vibrating atom on a subatomic particle right. level, and so are we, except with heartbeats. And so, you know, obviously there's been twin studies uh, that cannot be explained 
about why twins have been separated at birth and both married somebody named Mike, Mike, who drives a Mustang, who is an accountant. And they, you know. Feel when each other's injured, feel when one dies. Or even I've had a couple really bizarre metaphysical experiences. One, when I had a dream that uh, uh, one of my best friends for life and still one of my best friends I had this dream that he was dying. So bad, this was a nightmare, and it woke me up Mm. sweating, just like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And I get in my car here in Butte. This is when I was living in Butte and was working at the prison, or I was maybe working at Rio and driving out to Galen. And my phone rings, and it's him. Uh And he tells me that he was contemplating suicide. And last night, while you're dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So consciousness, mm-hmm. atoms. Yep. Uni- you've, you hear the term uni- universal consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think it goes a long ways to explain our ability to have compassion for each other, for animals' abilities to have compassion for each other. We've yes. all seen Plants. viral videos. Uh, yeah, we've oh, seen yeah. viral videos of monkeys rescuing yep. a rat out of a well. We've mm-hmm. seen... You know, um, I think I think we're just not paying attention, and that totally. we're all connected, um, and in, in terms of consciousness, mm-hmm. and that th- th- some of us pay attention more closely than others. Yeah, and, some are some um, are still sleeping. Yeah, and mm-hmm. but I think it also goes a long way to explain group think and group consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, in in some cases, is negative cults. Yes. Um, look, you know, God, there's this amazing three part uh, documentary on North Korea, and the um, the Un family and that dynasty mm. of Kim Jong Un's family, his father, his grandfather, and what his grandfather created back, uh, you know, yeah. uh, eighty years ago, when North Korea broke from South Korea, and uh-huh. um, and there's a whole, I mean, it's an entire culture of millions of people that have formed this consciousness around the belief Mm -hmm. that they're literally the children of a a dynastic ruler that can't think for themselves. Yeah. You know, and... Yeah, and it's just one umbrella or interconnected, like you said, consciousness over a culture or over a physical area like and you get that and we we do have to wrap this up because i think we're over an hour and a half at this point we'll have to do take two that just means we have to talk twice okay but you 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 feel that same it's probably not the same thing it's probably a little bit different but um driving through for example deer lodge we have that connection you and i working at the prison i can drive in the near vicinity and feel the big, dark, heavy cloud. Yeah. The, you know, I describe it as a cloud, but it's this big energy. energy. And you can feel it there with, I think it's, it, no, it's just the prison that's there. And it, that, that energy or that uh, sadness or that pain gravitates out over the whole community. And you can feel, I can feel it driving through. I yeah. can't even go into the community without that. Oh, I know. Exhausting, heavy feeling on my chest. And I have to go back out there once in a while to do evaluations on guys. And we go, go through that sally port and that clanging mm-hmm. steel doors, man. And it's just like so heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've gone into the chow hall. Yeah. And, it, you know, there's the energy of 
these yeah. 600 guys in there all at once. Yeah. And it is bizarre. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same. It's that it, that prison consciousness, too, that just our society. It, it, we, we could go into that. Feel, think of the energy that you feel at a concert, though. Yeah. When there's Elevated. this magic where you're practically levitating, mm-hmm. you know, or I've had, I've had experiences in therapy sessions yep. where I've made a breakthrough with somebody, I should say they've made a breakthrough, mm-hmm. and I literally could swear everybody in the room is levitating, yep. you know, or, um, yeah. I've, and Same, I, synergizing, brainstorming at a table in a, yeah. in a business setting. You get together and the whole team is, is synergizing. That's a, that they're sinking their energy. Yeah. It's all uh, elevated vibration, and it, that mm-hmm. vibration goes either direction and um, consciousness. Yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully it goes in the direction of like what we started off talking about today: purpose and yes. uh, inspiration and inspiring others. And yes. and I, I, you know, I talked about how it feels to get those letters from former clients, and and um, and so the, ultimately the question is through our process, you know, our, what are we, what are we creating? Yeah. You know, are we creating something that will grow and spread? Are we mm-hmm. acting out of love? Are we, you know, are we living a love based yes. life? Um, our life, our yeah. life is our creation mm-hmm. and it's how you live it, what you put into it, what experiences to shape this life and it's all every we know that everybody is connected throughout your life I mean you're somebody that I met 20 years ago and we still weave back and forth throughout and every time you do something to elevate yourself I see it I feel it I'm inspired it encourages me to continue to elevate to, to grow and our impact just in creating a beautiful life feeds out to others and helps elevate and raise them up too yeah that's well. I uh, I hope we get to do this again because yes. I could talk to you. For we will hours. have to just shape out a, a second purpose, uh, yeah. like have an intention and talk about that topic and just which We've, we have been all over the place. We today, have, for sure. but you know what? This is Coffee House Talk, and anybody that listens, they can shut it off at any time if they there get lost. Go. They can repeat it. Doesn't matter. This is you and me, and it was yeah, awesome. Right on. <laughs> so, Chris, thank you a million times thank for. You everything that you do for our community, for our world, for those that are um, impacted or those that are offenders, sexual offenders. Thanks for your creativity, for sharing your story, sharing your vulnerability through sobriety. By the way, I just had, I'm on, let's see, 184 days. of Right on. Yeah, yep. uh, December 23rd was my sobriety date. Good for Um, you. Yeah, and it has had a trickle effect, my daughter which she's went through treatment, she's sober, and my mom, my own mom and my dad have also given that up in the last couple wow. of years. Yeah, and that's life. That's huge. Stuff. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So that huge. happened with me too. My brother and sister both yeah. got sober. And it's that connectedness, right? I've had it's friends. inspiration. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell you how many of my old friends from, from the wild days of the 80s yep. called me and said, hey, you know, I need help. That's I want to do what you didn't. Yeah, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that yeah. continues. And my husband, too, he's one day behind me in sobriety, and God dang, it's a beautiful life. So right thank you for sharing your story and vulnerability because yeah. this might impact somebody else to be like, oh, wow, I can start over a new life and let that story die and become somebody else, too. Your I inspiration. Think, I think what w- the message should be is that there is, if you can get c- clarity, 
clarity is impossible when there's alcohol or drugs 100%. involved in your life. If you can get clarity, mm-hmm. there is no ceiling above you 100%. in terms of potential or possibilities. There's, yeah. uh, there's nothing that you can't, uh, not even achieve, but there's nothing that you can't learn. Yep. And there's nothing you can't get good at. Yep. And there's no limit to your capacity for loving relationships. And we really just have to get rid of this belief in limits. Yes. And I had to work at it, you know. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where we didn't really touch on this, but I had imposter syndrome so bad because everything would turn to shit so much in my life when I was using and drinking that when I started having successes, whether it was graduation from college or my Mm -hmm. first house, I I couldn't own it. There were times where, like when I built that house in Mexico, and I'm sitting on a on a on a veranda, on a house on a beach that something I created. I was overwhelmed with this feeling that I was in trouble. Yep. (laughs) Like someone's gonna find out. Yes. Yeah. This isn't that I didn't do this. Yeah. Somehow I faked this whole thing. And I'm like having this overwhelming feeling that I'm in trouble, mm-hmm. like real trouble. Yep. And when is the ball going to drop? When is it going to yeah. crumble from oh, underneath shit. of you? Yep. Yeah. Just wait. And so I, I, I can honestly say that after 34 years of sobriety, I've gotten better at owning mm-hmm. uh, good fortune and success yeah. and, and saying, okay, not it's, and it's not even about, I don't deserve this. It's like, I didn't do this. Yeah. I, it couldn't be me. I'm yeah. not even college material. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just a screw up. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I'm I'm able to um, take more risk, and I I ignore that old message about limitations. And yeah, risk doesn't have to turn out bad. Risk can turn out good. Right, it can right. have a positive um, effect. Exactly. Well, thanks so for fun. having me today. Oh my gosh, thank you, and we will have to uh, set an intention and do. Part two. I hope so. I'm going to bug you because you can probably tell I love it. No, it's great. It's great. And I'm going to roll out another podcast with a different theme. So we'll be sure to get you on that. But for those that are still listening, thank you so much. Chris, thank you. And it is time to clock out. Thanks, Tracy. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more on this guest, simply check the show notes. Like what you hear? Please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Together, we can grow and inspire.